Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Ain't no mountain high enough. Did you know this about that song? It was written in the late 60s by, I believe, Ashford and Simpson, but it only got its first Grammy nomination in 1970 when Diana Ross recorded it, right? That would have put my guest today at age 11. And I'm not really sure what you guys were doing when you were 11 years old, but this girl was already seasoned in the world of politics by then. I know you're saying, come on, Liz, seriously, but okay, so listen, she entered politics at the age of nine because she wanted a playground for her neighborhood in Louisiana. So she just, you know, what we all would do, right? She launched a door-to-door campaign for a city council candidate who had promised to build one, but she was savvy enough to know that adults with no kids would not care enough to vote for her candidate. So she paired it with this effort to pave local roads which then helped him get elected, and she, you know where this is going, got her playground. From there, it was Louisiana State University. She's got a fellowship at Harvard's John F. Kennedy School of Government, along with an unbelievable array of major gigs as campaign manager in national politics, but with a few soap opera dramas thrown in that involved a devastating Supreme Court decision for one of her candidates, an email hack, a resignation, And today, a new gig working, some would say, for the enemy, Fox News. Woo! I'm thrilled to introduce to you the one, the only, Donna Brazil. Welcome to Everyone Talks to Liz. Liz, you know, I had no idea you knew that. That is one of my most favorite songs. It is a song that not only brings back memories, but a song that motivates me, inspires me. Because when I was a little girl growing up, in the deep south, right outside of New Orleans in Kenna, I used to go and sit on a levee and just start praying to God to help me, to help me understand my purpose, but more importantly, to help me, you know, help others. And I promised God when I was a kid, and I'll never forget this, I said, God, if I make it, I'm going to always support my community because I knew my community would be behind me. So thank you for that song because it reminds me of just how far I've come over the last 50 years almost. (laughs) Well, I'm well-seasoned, Liz. I'll tell you. Women, I'm well-seasoned. Yes, well, honey, I'm right behind you. Um, (laughs) I would say, though, that the Diana Ross version to me is a completely different feel from the Marvin Gaye, Tammy Terrell one, which I don't love as much as the Donna, uh, as as much as the Diana Ross one, because that Diana Ross song just, just grips my heart the way she sings it. Oh, and, you know, Diana Ross is one of the most amazing performers. Um, I had a chance to meet her, oh, God, um, back in 1982, 83, 
with Stevie Wonder. We were working on a campaign mm-hmm. to make Dr. King's birthday a holiday. So I got to meet Michael Jackson, you know, the Temptations, I mean, the entire Motown family. But when it came to Miss Ross, I just couldn't, I, I didn't know what to say. She was my <laughs> idol. I worshipped her. I worshipped Aretha Franklin, Gladys Knight, uh, Barbara Streisand. I, I just loved everybody. And um, I just, you know, in her presence, you feel greatness. You f- you feel like you're at not just at a concert, but you're at a concert with a friend. She makes you feel pretty amazing. Well, the song makes me feel amazing every time I hear it. And, and just honestly, when you just described sitting, looking at the bayou as a child, praying, that that is that kind of caught my throat, I have to tell you. And, and I don't know if our listeners know this, but and I thought I came from a big family with five kids. You were one of nine? I was a third of nine. Um, my mother, Jean... Uh, she had us uh, one year after another. She only had one break between uh, <laughs> Cheryl, number one, in 1957, and Zola, number nine, in 1966. And then in 1960, she took a break. And <laughs> because I came into the world in December of 1959. And I guess my mother took a look at me and said, okay, I'm done now. But no, <laughs> my father probably said, let's keep trying because he wanted a couple of sons and he didn't have any sons. And so my mother uh, had six more kids, uh, three boys and three girls. So it, 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 was a, it, it was an amazing time, if you think about it, to grow up uh, during that period because the country was changing. We saw the future and the future was us. The future was young kids, you know. We saw a man, you know, land on the moon. Um, we felt like Jackie Robinson and, and Hank Aaron. And there were so many things happening during that period. Of course, we were in war, the Vietnam War. I'll never forget that because people, my uncles came back home. Um, Did they fight? Cousins came back. Oh, yeah. They, my dad was in the military. He served in Korea. And so there was this sense of duty and service and this notion that we had to give back. And although we were part of the working poor by, by you know, every stretch of, of, of what that word meant, my parents worked every day. Um, my grandmother, we lived in her house. Uh, two bedrooms, one bathroom. That's why I tell people I don't complain now that I have a couple of bathrooms because <laughs> I remember when we only had one oh, and we had my. to wait our turn. <laughs> and, you know, there's certain things you cannot do by waiting, but we did it. <laughs> and I give all credit to my mother who made us every Sunday of my childhood. Every Sunday I had to go to church. And, of course, during football seasons, I had to also watch football. So here I am now, you know, uh, a couple of months away from turning 60, and I still go to church, and I still watch football during football season. But you don't wait in line for the bathroom, though. Thank the Lord. (laughs) (laughs) I go to Costco, and I do a—and they say, why are you buying so much toilet paper? I say, because I don't want to run out. But I forget. There's only me. There's not, (laughs) you know, eight other siblings and my parents and my grandparents. But, yeah, I'm one of those people that I go and buy a lot of stuff. Well, growing up in big families, again, you know, I I was one of four girls, and then my little brother, Brooke, arrived. We call him Jesus because he was the Messiah. Um, And I've I've often said— some would call him the Antichrist, but we love him to death. And uh, we, you, it's hard to shake that. 
it is definitely hard to shake that sharing economy. You know, they talk, oh, the sharing economy now. And, Honey, we were doing that in the 60s, okay? In we our house. In the 60s. And, you know, I I love big families. I, I love kids, clearly. I, I'm still teaching. I'm, I'm going back to Georgetown uh, this month in Howard University. Mm-hmm. I have lectures planned at about three to four campuses each month. I, I will be speaking to the college Democrats. And my friends are all talking about, when are my kids leaving home? I'm like, oh, please send them to me. I really like kids. <laughs> you know, adults stay home. I'll take your children. I'll take care of them. I'll help them get through college and so forth. Help them write their first resume or whatever. But, you know, the gift of growing up, I think, back during that era is that we learned how to share. Yep. We had empathy for other people. We respected everyone. And and we were afraid to talk back to our parents. I, I'm still afraid. I mean, my parents are both deceased, but I'm still afraid to say anything bad because my nieces and nephews are like, don't talk about my papa like that. I'm like, wait a minute. He was my daddy before he was your papa. Let me tell you. Oh, he <laughs> made, my dad makes my dad before he died made cupcakes and and had fried chicken for my nieces and nephews. And we like. He barely got home before 8 o'clock, and he never wow. cooked for us. But, you know. But let's but, talk about that. Tell oh, me wow. about your folks and their profession. You said well, they worked every single day. You're talking every seven single days day. a week. Yes, they did, because mm-hmm. they had nine kids, and my parents had a motto, and that was education, education, education. We, in fact, we thought our middle name was education. <laughs> they wanted us to complete school. My parents both dropped out of college, fell in love got married. The rest is history, of course. Mm -hmm. And um, they wanted us to fulfill our dreams. And they worked hard so that they could put us through school, always made sure we had good clothes and shoes and all of the other things that most kids had. We just didn't have a lot of money. Um, they, uh, we didn't have a car, so we took public transportation everywhere. That didn't bother us because, of course, that gave us a little adventure. Mm-hmm. Um, but my mom was a, a, a domestic. She was a maid. Mm-hmm. She worked downtown uh, New Orleans. We moved out to Kenna after nine kids, I guess, came into the family. Didn't have enough room mm-hmm. in the city, so we found we lived with my grandparents. My dad was a janitor after completing his military service. But together, they, they made enough money to take care of all of us. And to, you know, the funny thing is that during those days, we never would have called ourselves poor. Yeah, we didn't have cars. We didn't, you know, we didn't have the finest of things. But we had good things, and and we shared. I mean, for example, when I got home from school, I had to take off my, quote, unquote, school clothes or my good clothes so that I can, you know, make sure that they didn't get worn out. And we had play clothes. Uh, when my mother, on Mondays, we would cook red beans so that we had enough, not just for the nine kids, but for other kids in the neighborhood who might not have, mm-hmm. you know, a good meal. And so my parents were the kind of people who wanted to save money for us every summer of my childhood. Now, I make fun of it now because it's fun to make fun of your parents, right? Uh, but every summer, they save up enough money for us to go on a Greyhound bus to Houston to watch the Astros and go to Astro World. I'll never forget, Liz, when I turned 15, Aww. I went to my mom and I said, please, please, can I go see Michael Jackson? I am, you know, <laughs> forget I the Astros. Astros to this days. But come on, I'm 15 now. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm getting up in age. And my mother told me I could. But, you know, think about the, the fact that you had parents who not only sacrificed 
uh, for my siblings and myself, but they made sure that we had enough for other people in the neighborhood. That That's the kind of parents I was raised by. I was oh, raised my. by some good people. I well, loved them. And during a during a difficult time in the 60s, certainly. And you, you talk about, oh, you know, we were taking public transportation and we got to college and our parents wanted education. But what we're not talking about here, and we should, was that it was superimposed over a traumatic time, especially during the African-American experience, because, I mean, you had the Civil Rights Act, which passed, and yet, even years after that, in Mississippi and southern states, uh, there were lynchings, there were horrific crimes against blacks, and yet you and eight siblings are living through this. Living through it with parents that did not want us to focus on the negative. Okay. I mean, they were adamant. Um, My mother did not want us to read about it. She wanted to talk to us. I'll give you a good example. The night Dr. Kane was murdered, and my grandmother made us pray, and, of course, I had a big mouth, ha-ha, and I raised my little hand and said, Grandma, who killed him? Why did they kill him? He was a man of peace. He was a man of love. I was eight years old, um, and my grandmother said, We had to pray. She said, Donna, shut up. We have to pray. So we prayed for Dr. King. We prayed for Dr. King's family. Of course, you know, we're still on our knees. We're Catholic, so we're going to keep praying. And she said, let's pray for whoever did this. We have to pray for them, too. And I I objected. I'll never forget. Mm -hmm. I said, no, no, no. Mm. I'm not doing that. And my grandmother again said, shut up, Donna. (laughs) By the way, I used to think that was my other name. And, uh, and, and, And my grandmother said, no. We must pray for everyone because our God is a God of love. So I grew up with John F. Kennedy, Jesus, and Martin Luther King pictures in our living room. I mean, we had no other symbolic pictures. We had crucifixes everywhere. I'm Catholic. But our parents taught us to love. And it was very difficult being a kid who was... In my judgment, I, I did. I, I read a lot. I mean, I, I disobeyed my mother. No question about it. I read everything I could find. I mean, I was in the library. They used to say, where's Donna? My sister and my older sisters would say, y'all know she's in the library or she's out there playing ball with the boys. <laughs> of course, those were my two favorite hobbies, to read and go play ball with the boys because, of course, boys were exciting. Mm-hmm. And my, sister were, my sisters were into paper dolls and uh, Barbie dolls and anything that they could find. I found no interest whatsoever in that. I found a lot of interest. I was an entrepreneur because I wanted to help my parents. I cut out coupons. I ran errands for my neighbors so that they can give me a quarter here, a dime there. Because, as you know, back in the day, you had penny candy. You didn't have to go to an ATM and get $20. (laughs) You had penny candy. Thank God I didn't have an ATM back then. But I I was well aware of racism. Mm -hmm. I was aware of the impact. But I was not allowed to talk about it. So I wrote a lot about it. I wrote poetry. I wrote speeches. I wrote so that I can express myself Mm -hmm. and how much I did not like it. But I get the sense that you, you know, people often say during this whole drama of of climbing the corporate ladder or climbing in the television news world, for me, people would say, oh, what was it like being a woman in the business? And I'd I'd say the exact same thing every time. I didn't see myself as a woman. I just saw myself as a journalist, and I never thought 
I'm a man or a woman, I'd pitch myself for every story possible, and I wouldn't sit there and think, well, this isn't appropriate for a woman to go into what was Hurricane Andrew, which hit New Iberia, Louisiana. I'm sure you know it well. I was in oh, Cleveland yeah. working for ABC at the time, and and I went in there, marched in there, and I was the only female who was really lobbying for it. And I said, send me. And, he, and the news director said, well, I just don't want your parents to get upset. And I said, well, why would they? And I said, well, you know, you're female. I said, you can stop right there. I'm not female. I'm a journalist. So you were you were looking at yourself as, hey, just I'm Donna. I'm forging ahead. And you, you did. I think that that's part and parcel for why you were able to attain the heights that you have in the political world, which leads me to the political world. You know, as a child, yes, you had this innate ability, it seems, Donna. I don't know. I mean, that that you could manage a campaign for a politician, whether it was a small town council member or what have you. But, you know, talk about how you vaulted into the world of national politics with Jimmy you know, Carter, as uh, I understand. For, uh, it really was. Uh, I was excited about the news. I used to watch the evening news on, you know, we had three major channels, back then three channels, four, six, and eight. Mm-hmm. And I, I loved all of them. I loved reading the newspaper, the Time Picayune. And I just, I loved everything from the from the news section to the sports section. And I could absorb everything that I read. I just loved it. I loved life itself because... I was a little girl, and I had the curiosity of, I think, a grown-up. I just wanted to know a little bit about everything. And so that year, after Dr. King's assassination, I I went to my mom, and I told her that Ms. Minor and Ms. Phyllisy on Taylor Street uh, were starting a campaign to get a playground in the neighborhood. And, of course, my mom looked at me like, excuse me, a playground? I'm like, yes, a playground. We don't have a playground. The white kids have a playground. We don't have a playground. And it was clear to me what was happening after 1968 was that they were trying to, you know, bring equality of the races uh, throughout the South. And so for the first time, there was consideration of building playgrounds as well as more schools on the, quote-unquote, the other side of the train tracks, otherwise known as the black community. And so I'd say, hell yeah, I want a playground. I didn't say hell yeah because my mother would (laughs) have popped that out of my mouth. But I say, yes, I want a playground. And so you know what Miss Minor gave me as my assignment? Because they knew I had a big mouth. They say, we need you to go down Fillmore Street, Jackson Street, Clay Street, and Webster Street, and knock on the doors. You know everybody down and just see if they're registered to vote. Well, of course, I did that in two days. And it was hot down there. And I came back and I said, here it is, 529 Fillmore Street, registered. 531, not registered. 534. I wrote it all down. I had the, you know, Catholic girls, you know, we knew how to write. (laughs) And I had it, and I spelled it right on white paper with my pencil and they looked at it and they said wow now we need you to go back and they gave me enough money to get a snowball and back then I did a lot for a snowball because it was hot mm. and I went back and I and they and they said would you register if we found a candidate to build a playground when well, then I went back and told them well they also want the roads painted I ah. mean paved ah. and they wanted they wanted a school I mean they gave me all this stuff but I wrote it all down and that year, uh, we went door to door. We registered well over 300 uh, voters. And you know what? Our council person was elected. Yes. And we got the playground. Pellegrin, 
uh, pay- playground is still in Kennel, Louisiana. <sighs> I am. I mean, in, although Katrina and Camille and Betsy and Bob and Frederick, I can name so many storms. You know, I know all the storms personally. <laughs> You've endured uh, them. <laughs> look, I, I'm a survivor. That's why every time they see a hurricane in, in, in the Atlantic, I freak out because I'm like, oh, 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 where is it going? But we got the playground. We got the roads. The roads were paved. Uh, we got another school in the community. And, of course, the next stop in my political journey was volunteering for uh, a statewide race. I'll never forget Attorney uh, 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 A.G. Uh, Billy Gus down in Louisiana. And the following year, that was 75, the following year, because I was active, mm-hmm. I was in high school, of course, Grace King at all-girls school. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, with Martha Strong, because after busing, my friends were black and white and everything in between. And we went out because her parents were very deeply involved in Democratic Party politics. Uh, Louisiana used to be like a one-party state back in those days. Now it's a one-party state Republican with half the Democrats around. But we went and we registered uh, young kids who were turning 18, high school kids turning 18 by 1976. Now, I wasn't. But we could still encourage them to register to vote. And that's when people started to recognize that I had a quote-unquote talent, that I was an organizer. Mm. I accepted it. Now, my mother kept telling me, now, look, girl, you know, my mother, hey, look, girl, you better focus on your education because you got to go off to college because my mother did not play and I was scared of her. And so I was focusing on my education, but I was still helping out. And Jimmy Carter that summer came to New Orleans. He had a... A rally in the French Quarter, and I'm not mm. supposed to tell it to my mom. Mm-hmm. But I found a way to get downtown with Martha Strong and some other friends. And guess what? Girl, we had a big rally. And then from that day forward, I've really not looked back. From Jimmy Carter onward. And obviously, you ended up running major campaigns. And the one that I think about the most is Al Gore because of what happened during his presidential campaign and how it went to the Supreme Court. I am dying to know what it was like for you during that time where it was Bush-Gore and it all came down to the Supreme Court. I don't want to know about the night because that was in December. I remember it well. I want to know about a couple of nights before then. Was it sleepless? Was there angst for you as his campaign manager? I became campaign manager. I started off as his deputy. I have been deputy. As you mm-hmm. said, I've fallen, gotten up, fallen, gotten up. I mean, like everybody in politics, I got my, I got some bruises. I'm not the perfect person in the world, but Al Gore gave me an opportunity to uh, serve as his uh, deputy campaign manager. And on September 30th, uh, 1999, he elevated me uh, to being his campaign manager. I'll never forget, I called my dad. My mom was deceased by then. I called my dad and I told him, I said, hey, watch the news, watch the news. You won't believe what's, what's about to happen. He said, what? And I said, Al Gore is going to name me his campaign manager. I'm going to be the campaign manager. I'm going to be the first black person to lead a major presidential <laughs> campaign. Oh, but, but, you know, I'm just, you know, I'm just excited, Vibrating, right? elevating. And you know what my dad said? Oh, it's just a job. 
Oh, my oh. God. He told me it was just a job. But you know what? That was the attitude. That was the right message to give his third child because I put my head down and I became the first campaign manager in American history to win all primaries and all caucuses in a contested because we had one opponent. Mm -hmm. And, you know, back then everybody was like, hey, you know, the girl know what she's doing, you know. And here come the last day of the campaign. And I'm thinking, you know, I like Al Gore. I'm going to wish him the very best in the White House. But I am through. You know, after two years of anything, you're like, I'm through. I'm tired. I need to go home. Mm -hmm. I I need to rest. I need to lose weight. You know, all of the things. And then, of course, (laughs) I want to celebrate my birthday without being on a campaign. I celebrated my 40th birthday at the Wild Heart Saloon in Nashville, Tennessee. (laughs) So I was like, can I get off this campaign trail? And here come Florida. Oh, my God. And that morning, my sister called me, number seven, and she lives in Florida. She's still in Florida. So, of course, I'm praying for her and all the other Floridians and Carolinas and et cetera. But she called and she said, how many forms of ID do I need to vote? I said, one, girl. Leave me alone. I'm busy. She said, no, no, no. How many? I say, Dimitri, one. And she said, I needed to show three forms of ID. I said, oh, you crazy. And no, she had her, she had just moved. And although she had registered to vote in a new area, she had went from, I believe, Orange County to another county. And they didn't have her registration. And so she had to show um, uh, a driver's license as well as uh, a utility bill, and mm-hmm. they gave her a provisional ballot. Okay. So she was fuming. But mm-hmm. that began an entire day of conversations about irre- irregular voting in Florida. So by the time we, we ended up with a tie uh, and went through those long 30-some-odd days. Hanging chads. Uh, hanging chads, swinging chads are my favorite, the pregnant chad. The pregnant chad. <laughs> pregnant chad. Chad was pregnant, okay? <laughs> Remember that was the one that was partially punched but not right. fully. Right, it, it was like a little sort of stomach yeah. punched out. Uh, yeah, and you know, here you know, I'm campaign manager. I got thousands of employees in all 50 states, and it's my job to, to be the leader. And I had a candidate who was like, what should we do, what should we do? I had lawyers telling me what we should do or what we should not do. I had the Gore family, you know, expressing their, of course, remorse. I had, uh, you know, our vice presidential candidate, um, you know, uh, Mr. Lieberman and his wife, Hadassah, and their family. It was one big mess. Mm-hmm. And, of course, in the days leading up to the Supreme Court decision, it was it was rocky because it was all in the hands of lawyers. Every day there was a new revelation. Every day there was a new, you know, court order. And it came down, you know, uh, on that Friday before uh, it came down, I really did believe uh, that every vote would count and Mm -hmm. that we would, Mm -hmm. you know, get a, a verdict after all of the votes. But then, as you well know, the Supreme Court had the uh, yes. last word. I'll, I'll tell you one thing. That night, Al Gore called me. I was at the DNC headquarters. He was at the vice president's ma- mansion watching, you know, all of the things that unfolded. The, I believe it was 65 pages or 63 of Bush versus Gore. I was getting it through the fax machine. That was before we had some of these other devices. Right. And Gore said, shut it down. I said, Mr. Vice President, excuse me, what did you just say? 
He said, shut it down. Mm. I said, wait a minute, Mr. Vice President. He said, Donna, the Supreme Court has rendered its verdict. Shut it down. That night, driving home to my house, I, back then I lived eight blocks from the Capitol, and my, my, my house actually, if you walked out the front door, you could see the Supreme Court, and I, I just literally broke down. I, I wanted to organize a march. I was angry. I, wa- I wanted to protest, but the vice president of the United States said, shut it down, you and know, I did I, I as I was told. I will say this about that time. The way he handled it and the way he held his head high but not so high that it was an egotistical, I'm fighting this, that in in that moment to me was one of the most important points in the entire history of the United States of America, that we had a peaceful transition of power even if one side felt it was so unbelievably wrong and unfair, Al Gore was a prince in a democracy. I I just looked at that and I thought, he goes down in history as standing up for what democracy really means here in the United States, peaceful transition of power. I'll never forget it because when he said to me, it was time to shut it down, shut down the campaign, call the staff, go back to Nashville, close down all of the offices, mm. You know, shutting down a campaign is not easy. You you got to do it with as much finesse as you uh, take to open up a campaign office. And, and, you know, in my lifetime now, I've shut down a, a political campaign and I've also shut down a party to transition. I mean, that it's hard. It's hard. I mean, after the 2016 campaign, I, it was now I was in charge. I was in charge. And the election night, uh, which ended about two or three in the morning— um, I made the decision to just lay across the bed. I didn't even want to shower, even change my clothes. I said, let me get the first train back to D.C. because I, ne- I, I knew I had to go back to D.C. as the chair of the party, the interim chair. I called myself the interim chair because I wanted. I didn't want anybody to think I wanted this job. I did not want the job. Who wakes up in the morning and say, I want to be chair of a major political party? Not Donna Brazil. In fact, I was chair in 2011 for a few weeks, and I'm like, okay, that's enough. I got it on my resume. Chair the party for a couple of weeks. <laughs> Hell, thank you, Lord. Bye. And then I had to get it again, and I'm like, oh, my God. I had to give up everything. Yeah, well, you when, know, that— When you're chair, you had to give up everything. It was it was definitely um, a controversial time, too. I don't need to relitigate anything because I, our viewers know, our listeners know— but, of course, there was the uh, the hack by WikiLeaks of John Podesta's emails and other emails that showed that you had spoken to Hillary Clinton and had known about a certain question that might be asked during one of the debates or town halls, I believe it was. And uh, you ended up resigning. But my interest, my interest in, in all of that is not so much what happened, because you apologize, you even wrote about it in a book, was coming back from that. And what you've decided to do since then— was something I'm pretty sure no one else out there would have anticipated you would do, and that is get invited to come work for Fox, <laughs> to be a contributor for Fox News and Fox Business well, Network. Well, let me let me just um, make one slight correction. Um, I didn't resign as chair of the DNC. In mm-hmm. fact, 
I stuck with the job because I felt obligated to shut down the, you know, remember President Barack Obama and Mrs. Obama was leaving. Right. Uh, as part of my responsibilities as chair is that they're leaving and we're the political arm. I mean, so we had a lot of work to do. And I wanted to transition uh, to a process by which we allow um, a new chair, and, and of course, that's Tom Perez. And I wanted to get the DNC out of debt, which I did. I left it uh, with cash on hand. And I did everything I thought I should do, and then I broke down <laughs> because I lost my dog, and it was like, oh, my God. I, I've i never—I mean, the only times in my life where I have felt acute pain of the heart, of course, the death of my mother— mm-hmm. Um, the death of my father, the death of my my siblings. I've I've lost two siblings, and the death of my dog. But if you want to put another one in there, and because the hurricane seasons always make you feel you know depressed. Yeah. But another one was that that being a chair while the party was under attack. You know what it was like? It was like trying to keep your head up every day while people are smacking you across the face. And as much as I wanted to inject myself and say, wait, I didn't do this, but I did this, I wasn't running for president. Hillary Clinton was. And so my obligation was to help Hillary Clinton, not to try to clear myself, because I knew at the end of the day I could write about what was really happening to us. But at the end of the day, I said, hey, you know what? I'm sorry. I I know what it looks like. People don't understand when you're in politics, Liz, and I've been in politics for almost 50 years. I, you know the do's, the don'ts, you know the rules, you know the laws, you don't try to break and you don't try to skate around it. Mm-hmm. But the problem is, and if I had to do it again, I would, I would pretty much duck out of the room if they even say the word debate. When you're under pressure, and I was under a hell of a lot of pressure, mm-hmm. and you know why, because they wanted more debates, right. more forums, more town halls. And so who do they come to when they scream? You. They came to me. Mm-hmm. And what did I do? I provided it. I provided it all. I was working for CNN, yes, but I was also vice chair of the party. Right. So my job was to make sure that the party was ready for these debates and town halls. You look at the so-called questions and comments, it was about race. It was about Flint. It wasn't like somebody wrote them up, but what WikiLeaks did was show all of my emails to Hillary, uh, Hillary staff in my case, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but none of my emails to Bernie or Bernie staff. So I had to rely on Bernie and Bernie's staff to vouch for me, which they did. They said I was fair. That's all I wanted. Mm -hmm. Now, let me go back to Fox. I have to tell you a little secret. You know, there are many people in this business who have been my mentors. And if I told you that Sean Hannity and Bill O'Reilly, okay, back in the day before I had a CNN contract, when Fox was just getting on on their feet— Fox would always invite me. Fox would always have me on the network. Then CNN hired me, and no, and then I became a CNN cable girl because I love me some. I love myself some <laughs> CNN. But when it was over with, and I started going back out there, I went back to ABC. And then I started doing MSNBC, and then I started doing Fox, and I just really enjoyed the way people treated me. It mm. was refreshing. Mm. I mean, everybody know that you fall from grace. I'm I'm a sinner. Hell, <laughs> I stay in church. I keep, and if I can't get to church, I go to St. Mattress or Bedside Baptist. That's just how much I know I need to get to church. And um, but 
you know, Dana Perino, I, Chris Well, I have so many friends at Fox. And by the way, so many of my friends at Fox, like Greta Van Susteren, who's no longer there, you know, they used to be at CNN. Yeah, so it's we like, all jump. I mean, who are we kidding? It's my funny. friends. Yeah, my friends. I can't. How can I just like? Oh, you're on Fox. Yeah, well, they're my friends. And by the way, every time I go into the makeup room, I say it's a makeover because I feel so good. I oh, am that, the silver fox. And by fox. the way, I love it. Our makeup artists are amazing. And you popped up on on the screen one day. And I looked and said, oh, I'm loving the eyelashes and the whole look. I mean, it was, we make everybody, including me, look fabulous. And it's great to be, it's it's also, Fox, it's, people don't understand about Fox. There is a personality inside this building where people actually want you to do well, which is, yeah. you know, it's very competitive out in the world. But for the people on the outside who think, oh, wow, uh, everybody worked everywhere. I'm, I'm married to a guy who works at MSNBC and NBC, but he worked at Fox before that. I was at CNBC before this, and right. he was at CNN for 13 years. I mean, come on. Everybody's worked everywhere. But I will say this yeah. about Fox. It's no surprise to me that you felt welcomed and fairly treated. I have not had... And, you know, I, I'm knocking on wood. I don't want to break anything in here because I don't need to pay for it. <laughs> <laughs> but I have had such an amazing experience. You know, I spent a week up in New York at the Fox Bureau, with all the worldwide headquarters. And one, someone said to me, well, why are you coming in so early? You don't, you're not due here till 5 o'clock. I said, I like the people. Right, right, right. I come in to work at 10, 1030. When I go downstairs to get something to eat, I say, y'all need anything? I talk to the people. I go to all of the various uh, producers. I get to meet new people. I love Fox. And by the way, um, the experience of being on television during a presidential season, I feel a, a, an obligation to be there just to explain what's happening not just with Democrats, but whatever I see across the country. Well, that's the thing. Why speak to the choir? Why not go out there and give your side to people who, who haven't heard it, who need to hear it? You know, it's what's fascinating to me. Bernie Sanders' town hall on Fox got oh, yeah. millions of viewers. Pete Buttigieg. We've had a lot of people on on Fox News doing doing wonderful town halls with Martha McCallum and Brett Baer, two of the fairest Quality Finest. journalists out there. Good journalists. I mean, uh, Julian Castro, Amy mm -hmm. Klobuchar, mm -hmm. uh, Marianne Williamson has appeared on the Fox Network, uh, Tulsi Gabbard, of course, John Delaney. You know, I encourage, I, I, I was there that evening that Bill de Blasio and Sean Hannity had their one hour together. And I told Governor, I mean, I told Mayor de Blasio mm -hmm. that I was going to come in and stick around just to give him a little moral support. We have fun, you know, because I go back with Sean. I mean, Sean reminds me of some of the boys I grew up with. You know, I just want to play marbles with him and beat him, you know, and then I'm <laughs> sure he wants to play something with me and beat me. But, you know, and, you know, I just I, I can hang, you know, I can. And, you know, from time to time, I, I'll go on Laura's show because, you know, they say, well, she's opinionated. But so am I. <laughs> and, oh, you know, we're, we're bossy chicks. I told Laura, I can't wait to get her down for Mardi Gras because she's going to be on one side of the float. And I'm going to be she's going to be on the right <laughs> side. I'm going to be on the left side. And we're going to see how many people will get our Mardi Gras beads. And the I was going to say, know, yeah, we are Americans. We're Americans. And mm. I think the best thing about what I love about 
being an on-air pundit or TV commentator is that I get to share my opinion, but I also get to hear from others and their opinion. And you know what? I value people for their opinions, their thoughts, because it it allows me to grow. You know, when I used to appear with uh, George Will on ABC, George Will used to drive me crazy. Because he would quote Madison. He would quote from the Constitutional Convention. He would quote Hamilton. I kept saying, come on, I just know Tupac, man. Of course, (laughs) I know more than Tupac. But I was like, why is he quoting? And you know what? I learned learned conservatism Mm because I didn't understand the movement. I I thought the conservative movement was, I mean, who are these old-fashioned people who look and, you know, through the rearview mirror, not looking ahead, they're going to get us in the wreck, right? No, I learned the foundation of conservatism is the belief in liberty. And from that point forward, hell, you know, I'm like, here, yeah, I got y'all down. Mm-hmm. Now let me go figure out what I believe as a progressive, as a liberal. Right. And then I realized that my views are a little bit on this other side, so maybe I am a moderate. But you know what? I'm just an American. I love my country. Well, as we finish up, because I could actually talk to you forever. Um, I love these stories. We sometimes do a lightning round where we throw out s- just a bunch of things and we get a one line or two from from our listeners. And because you have either looked up to these people or worked with them or deal with them, I want to do a lightning round and just throw out some names. And are okay. uh, you ready to play? Yes. Okay. So we, we already talked about Martin Luther King Jr. And obviously it was in your cortex for your entire Hero. life. Hero. So let, Hero. let me begin with Robert F. Kennedy. Brother. I think of him as a brother. The speech he gave right after Dr. King's death was the most amazing speech ever. So I, I when you say Robert Kennedy, I think ripple of hope. Mm. Jesse Jackson. Wow. Preacher. Powerful survivor. Shirley Chisholm, which for those of you who don't know, but this was big in my childhood. She was the first black woman elected to U.S. Congress. And in 1972, she ran for president with the greatest motto, which was unbought and unbossed. I work for her as well. You're kidding. Oh, my God. I tell you, I'm old. Um, (laughs) Miss Chisholm, Miss C, Miss C was seat at the table. She wanted women to have a seat at the table. She was a feminist. She wanted women to have a seat at the table. Barack Obama. Audacity, hope. I will never forget the first time I met him in 2003, and I said, wow, he's the future. And so I went to John Kerry's team, and I encouraged them to give him a shot as the keynote speaker. Like Barbara Jordan, I thought he had a message, a song, Mm. a melody to tell the world. I'm proud of the work that we did to elect him, and I'm proud that he was our 44th president of the United States. Sarah Palin. Friend. Friend. I got a chance to meet her. We hit it off. We played basketball. We talked sports. Are you kidding me? Do you understand I know Sarah Palin? And let me tell you why. 
In 2008, I defended her. When they attacked her and they said, how can a woman with small children run for vice president? I said, well, how can a man with small children run for president or vice president? And so I told her that. And, you know, I met her daughter before I met her. But Sarah... Sarah Palin, friend. Yep. Condoleezza Rice, friend. I got a lot of friends on the Republican side. And guess what? I'm not giving up not one of them. All right. If you don't like them, that's your business. They're my friends. (laughs) And you know what? I cook gumbo. So come on over and you might be my friend, too. And my final one. You know where this is going. Donald Trump. I pray for him. I have forgiven him. It's a difficult topic. Mm Mm-hmm. But I released the angst in my heart in April of 2017. I went to church, and I said, God, I'm going to pray for him. And I pray for him every single day. I used to know the president. I used to, he used to give me a kiss. And then, I don't know, but I pray for him. You know what Dinah Ross would say? Someday we'll be together. I, I still believe he's my president. And let me tell you one president that you probably would be surprised that I also call a friend, George W. Bush. After Hurricane Katrina, I worked three years alongside the Bush administration to help bring back the, my beloved Gulf Coast. I don't believe you make enemies in this world. I believe you should make friends. I believe that if you make mistakes, you should ask for forgiveness. I believe that God put us all here for a reason with time and talent in order to give back. So, yeah, I I pray for him. I pray for him each and every day. I swear I pray for him. Donna Purcell, I am thrilled to have you on Everyone Talks to Liz. I I really thank you for being so open and telling your story. I know our listeners are better people for having heard your story. Thank you so much. Liz, uh, when they call your name out, intelligent and fearless thank you and god bless you i respect you a lot so thank you so much i look forward to being on the air with you thank you yes you got to come on the show we appreciate it and speaking of the show everybody do you care about your money who does not monday through friday 3 p.m eastern it's called the claim and countdown that final just exciting dramatic hour of trade right here on fox business network thank you so much and we'll see you next time 